Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the, what was this Tom, recently upgraded, renovated Crop Doctors Podcast Studio. Completely gutted, reorganized, totally new furnishings. Thanks to Tom for picking it out. We'll figure out where everything goes. We're still moving some things around in a normal Jason fashion. He messed around with some cords this morning and then said, we might want to move that over there. And that's going to mean we're going to have to change the cord structure. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. we have cords to reach from this room to the other building. (laughs) (laughs) And it really only needs to go about three feet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the cloud lifters are a little imposing. I don't know what the length on those cords is, but suffice to say it's... Too much. Yeah, way, way more than what we need. But at the end of the room. day, when you consider most cords that they give you nowadays that are really not significant, you know, when you order something from Apple and it ends up being like, oh, a meter and a half. Right. Yeah, great. That's or less than a meter. If you heard the chuckle <laughs> on the phone, that would be Trey Price. Hey, Trey, what's going on? Good morning. How are things in Mississippi? Well, good, except for this renovation that we did. We were eventually going to have to do it one way or the other, so we it just finally, this week was the week, and we've had to deal with the fallout from it. We uh, intended to do this yesterday, and then Tom and I ended up in Madison at the Apple Store uh, yesterday afternoon, not recording a podcast. And so in we addition, this up a day. not getting anything else accomplished. It kind of was a wash for an afternoon. We did enjoy the afternoon. The weather was spectacular. It was a wash for a day, dude. It was. It was the entire day. Uh, whatever I intended to do yesterday <laughs> did not get done. <laughs> yep. We just, so actually, I did cross something out on my to-do list, and that was the date at the top. It just changed the date. Tom wanted Trey to come on this morning and talk about wheat diseases since we got a significant wheat crop going now. Well, and yeah, I think just general price of the commodity at this point means that it gains relevance again for the 2022 season, which, you know, wheat's an excellent rotational crop, and in some cases it's a good double crop, especially in this part of the world. But for the last few years, we've planted wheat throughout the mid-southern United States, and, and they just use it as a cover crop. And they're, des- they're desiccating or killing it with a herbicide and planting straight into it than probably beans in most cases. Well, we got some wheat for grain this year that started out as a cover crop and then became yep. a grain crop. So there's some of that, too. But, Trey, before we start, you know, I'm going to ask you my question. And I asked Daniel Stevenson the same question a few weeks ago, but I liked it, so I uh, thought I would pose it to you as well. Doing what you do, what's the strangest thing you've ever seen in a field? Oh, man. I've seen a lot of strange strange things. I figured you had. That's why I wanted to hear your answer. I'm hoping he's not going to tell you the same thing that Daniel did, but we'll see. The first one that popped in my head was a herd of goats. And I saw that last year, or year before last. They were just, they were just hanging out and in the field, like in the, in the cornfield. I don't know why they were there. I didn't ask them. So like, <laughs> that's the first thing that popped in my head. Significant herd of goats, like a couple hundred or 15 or 20? 15 or 20. <laughs> I was in the middle of nowhere. I don't, I, don't, I don't guess I know what constitutes a significant herd of goats in the Mid-South. <laughs> there can't be too many 15 or 20 Head goat herds around, huh, Tom? 
No, nothing really comes to memory. Lightning strikes were pretty strange when I first encountered those back when I was a teenager. But yeah, um, those everybody are... was always superstitious not to walk through them. Well, yeah, don't walk through the lightning strike, D. Everybody knows that. We had some, uh, I think it was somebody that was diabetic and maybe went, like, their sugar got out of whack and they, they ran through the, the corn hybrid trial in Alexandria. It was either that or uh, one of those college kids down there. I never figured that out. but <laughs> they, they, they took out plots fairly cleanly and we were able to save the data. I mean, they took out, like, half plots, so it was okay. We had decided to talk to Trey this morning, obviously, being as wheat is important or relevant again. I think there's two main diseases, and, and Trey will more than likely agree with me, and I know that they have identified some stripe rust in Louisiana. Um, why don't you walk us through some of that, Trey? I mean, importance of stripe rust, when it can become an issue, and, and how significant an issue it can be. Stripe rust is just as important as leaf rust. Um, we occasionally see stem rust in the state, but but stripe rust and leaf rust uh, see every year. Stripe rust you'll see uh, during cooler temperatures; it's more active. Uh, leaf rust is more active during the, the warmer temperatures. But you'll first you can notice stripe rust as early as late winter, you know, November, December, and some wheat. Especially in South Louisiana, you'll end up you'll have yellow hot spots in the in fields. Generally, the first thing you notice, that's why they call it yellow rust, really. The hard part about those yellow areas, a lot of times it's difficult to address the fact that you can get a lot of standing water in some situations. So walk out and check those yellow areas that may be a low area Mm -hmm. or it it could be a situation with stripe rust because it'll readily overwinter in our particular geography. Sure will. And we had, there are a lot of areas that were yellow from wet feet. Wheat does not like wet feet for sure. So, um, you got. You actually have to, to exit the vehicle and walk out in the field and and, and take a knee and, <laughs> and look a little closer. So one interesting caveat of that is a lot of wheat varieties will will get stripe rust when they're when it's juvenile wheat, but they'll develop adult plant resistance later on in the season. So super important to know what variety you have out there. If you've got a resistant variety, more than likely it's not going to be an issue. And the tricky part about that is that all the you know the rust have the ability to to overcome that resistance over time. So that's essentially one of the driving factors in the in the breeding process is to continually develop strike rust and leaf rust and stem rust and and scab resistant varieties and things like that. So, well, and you know, um, years ago, the USDA out of Minnesota used to have someone that would actually jump in a vehicle and drive around the country and scout wheat much more frequently. Mm -hmm. And that, that group or the people that populated that group all essentially retired and they basically haven't been replaced. So those of us that are plant pathologists throughout the, the greater wheat growing areas in the country essentially will send them samples to look at to help breeding programs by determining which particular races are present throughout a season and whatnot. I mean, and it's, it sounds mind numbing, but it's, it seems to be wildly important and is certainly something they're continuing to do out of that cereal rust group in, in uh, Minnesota. The other thing with the rust is we're fortunate that the lots of different fungicides work on rust and, you know, you don't have to have the these Cadillac fungicide treatments to manage rust. I mean, you know, generic tilt, generic tebiconzole are, are options if you have a 
a susceptible variety out there. Uh, it's pretty easily managed, and typically the, the best time in this flag leaf. Although, if you've got, like I have in my plots here at Making Ridge, I've got a stripe, what I like to call a stripe rust dog out there. It's a, a breeding line that we save seed for every year. You may want to go with your application a little earlier than, than, than flag leaf if it, if it starts early and it's, disease is progressing rather quickly, which it is now. What is the penalty for not addressing that, Trey? So what kind of yield loss potential do you have? Oh, yield, yield losses can be catastrophic due to, to stripe rust and susceptible varieties when you have the right conditions. 50% is not unheard of in my check plots with the susceptible variety. So pretty important. It can be pretty devastating. Something to, something to look out for. The good news is most of the varieties that we have planted are, are resistant. Yeah, and that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think listeners need to need to recognize that those of us that are plant pathologists always attempt to kind of make the situation a little easier to consider fungicide efficacy. So we typically choose a variety that's going to basically be super susceptible to whatever specific disease we're looking at. So that's not a real common potential yield loss with all varieties. And and as Trey indicated, the most important point to point out is that the bulk of the commercially available varieties that are out there do have resistance to something like stripe rust. Trey said that Sometimes you will have infection in a plant early in the season and it'll develop resistance as the plant matures. How does that work? I don't know the nuts and bolts of it personally, but, I, you know, it's just it's referred to as adult plant resistance. So what I've witnessed as far as rating plots is you may pick up a little stripe rust when the, before, you know, before the wheat's joining. Once it starts going into reproductive phases, the I guess there's some physiological change in the plant that allows it to to uh, to resist rust and rust infection. So it just stays on those lower leaves and doesn't move as the plant yep. grows. Yeah, and it's confusing to read about. There's not a tremendous amount of information out there, and anything that you're going to Google search on something like that's going to put you on a whole bunch of whole bunch of molecular plant pathology, which will just make your head spin. Yeah, I don't want to go there. Steve Harrison's here walking his plots today. I should have invited him in here, but um, he could probably explain that a little better than myself or here, Boyd Padgett. You mentioned the treatments, Trey. What are our treatments of choice for stripe rust? There are so many, and the, the way the supply chain issues are now, it's essentially what you can get your hands on. I don't really have it. I don't have, if somebody asked me my number one treatment on stripe rust, more than likely it's the cheapest fungicide that your distributor has. A particular group? Trizoles are effective once you have infection out there, and also the strobes are efficient at preventing. So multiple modes of action work, even the SDHIs work as well. Luckily, we don't have resistance in that population that we're aware of. Yeah, but I don't know that anybody's actively looking at that right now. It's a little bit harder to deal with the rusts since they're obligate pathogens. Yeah, that's a good point. We haven't brought up yet is they're obligate parasites and they kind of just they come in just kind of blow in every year and i have to remember as much biology as i can on this stem rust is the one exception to that it survives as different spore stages within alternate hosts in a given region and that's why it's such a bigger issue in the Pacific Northwest and some of those places because of the whole um, oh I have to think a minute now 
That's right. Going back to plant pathology 101 there. The, uh, barberry. Wheat rust. That's right. Yeah, barberry plant. Barberry yeah. plants. And that was the whole, you know, big push during the Great Depression. And, and the New Deal was eradication of the barberry because it was an alternate host of the, of the stem rust fungus. I mean, that's like plant pathology 101. It's like Trey said, that's the whole entire eradication thing. That's one method of control, which you typically can't talk about in most situations. Although when we talk about residue removal and all the rest of that, it's kind of a similar situation with residue removal. It's just, we don't spend enough time talking about that. Yeah. Even I knew about the barberry thing or had heard of the barberry thing. To segue into the next one, and I think the reason I really wanted to talk to Trey was you do a significant amount of fusarium head blight or scab work in Louisiana. That was added at a time there because of Steve Harrison's presence and some other things. And and when Gene Milas was at Arkansas, I never got involved in the scab research initiative. But why don't you talk a little bit about that, Trey, and I can fill in some gaps as we work through that if if need be. Scab and commodity prices over the years is the reason that for the wheat acres decline in Louisiana. We used to have several hundred thousand acres of wheat and uh, I think maybe this year we've got 50,000 and it got down to as low as I'd say 10,000 acres at one point but five out of the last six seasons we've had scab epidemics and it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a disease that of the of wheat kernels that causes really causes significant yield losses, significant quality losses caused by a fungus or several fungi. We actually have our own species in Louisiana. It's Fusarium louisianensis, pronounce that properly, but more common more commonly people attribute it to Fusarium graminearum, uh, which is also a pathogen of corn, uh, causes ear rots in, in, in corn. So it's uh, and you know we we've had increased corn acreage, we've had reduced tillage, so we have that inoculum out there. And whenever uh, we're planting wheat in areas that where where we where we've had a lot of corn, um, that fungus will will infect the wheat during flowering, and which is why the, the you know your application window is a fifty percent flowering with with scab. But some years in the state we've had loads rejected because of this disease, so be very bad, you know, very de- detrimental to yield and quality. Fungus produces a toxin, actually a couple of different toxins, but the main one is, is deoxynovalanol. It's uh, toxic to, to livestock. And if, if your levels get up too high with that toxin, you can't sell your crop. Um, so the conditions that you absolutely do not want during flowering are warm and rainy conditions. Well, you know, guess what we've got coming every year in April is warm and rainy conditions. So it, it's been a, a major problem for us. The other caveat to that is fungicides are marginally effective. You can expect at most 50% control. So um, it's a very difficult disease to manage. It's just, it, it's our main issue in the state. It, it's, it's why our, our acreage has been down. Um, as far as the work that goes into to, to coming up with solutions for growers here at Macon Ridge and, and at, at, at Dingley and Alexandria and on campus in Baton Rouge. Uh, we collaborate extensively with Steve Harrison's program, his, his wheat breeding program. And we, we basically screen in all three locations. We'll have a lot of the material 
that's the breeding material for southern wheat production in the United States. We're not the only ones that are doing it. Uh, there are others in other states, too, that have what we call scab nurseries, where we'll screen breeding breeder material. We'll, we'll have the OVT entries in there. Just about every everything that's coming down the pipeline, everything that's available commercially is in this trial. And we'll grow the fungus on sterilized corn, inoculate the plots, miss the plots at night to create those ideal conditions for scab development. And I'll go through and rate all of those those head rows. And, um, and all that data gets thrown in to, to the southern breeding group. And they'll choose from that their breeding material and try to come up with moderately resistant scab varieties. And that's the best way to manage scab is to have a moderately resistant variety. And Boyd and I have, we are telling growers to budget a scab application in their wheat crop just based on what we've seen over the past six, you know, five or six years. Products for that, there are products that are better than others for scab. Uh, right now, the short list is Caramba, Prosaro, Proline, uh, Miramis Ace. Those are the ones that we've looked at. Now, there's another product called Speric that is essentially Caramba, a mixture of Caramba and Proline. And I would expect that one would perform well, too, but I don't have any data on it. We're putting it out this year for the first time. The interesting thing to point out there. You know, we, we talk a lot about fungicides and which modes of action or class of chemistries are best, but everything that you listed there is either a, a triazole or a demethylation inhibitor uh, or contains an SDHI or as, as Miravis Ace would. Products that contain mm-hmm. QOIs or strobilurins should not be used for scab management because you can have a reaction with that particular class of chemistries whereby that will actually significantly increase the amount of toxin associated with that particular disease. So that's why you really have to stay away from the QOIs. Um, and I think somebody, somebody in Upper Midwest did the bulk of that research. Um, and that's something that yep. we, we talk about as plant pathologists, but we don't really do a good job of advertising that particular uh, research and, and supporting data to suggest you know, stay away from the QOIs at late application timings because that may factor into the production of Dawn, uh, and then your your wheat's essentially unmarketable. Absolutely. And another thing about fungicide applications, and, and this is another problem with GAB management, is uh, total water volume. So if you've got ideal conditions for SCAB where it's, it's warm and rainy, you really can't put your application out by ground. Um, but if it, if at all possible to get to get if you can get that application out by ground and use as much water as you can afford, that's ideal because coverage is key. There's even been some some work done, I think, in the Midwest as well, where they had opposing nozzles. They had the dual nozzles that would spray the heads at I think it was 30 degree angles or 35 degree angles opposite, so that you would get you could um, maximize your, your head coverage. The biggest issue is, is, is people can't put out put out the fungicide by ground, so they end up going by air. And I think you can find some applicators that'll do 10-gallon 10, 10 work by air, but again, it comes down to, to economics. Most of the time, they'll get five if they're lucky. What timing, exact precise timing, are we shooting for? 
with these applications? 50% flowering or, or early flowering. You want all the heads to be out. The earliest, our early OVT, we have some heads popping out in the earliest varieties here in the northeast part of the state. Um, scab applications have already, some, some have already gone out in, in south Louisiana. So um, I'm sure Steve Harrison's materials on in Baton Rouge are, are heading. We're anywhere from, from flowering to going back earlier to just starting to join. The bulk of our wheat in Mississippi would be somewhere jointing and a little bit beyond that. And it's been a few weeks since I've been down to the southernmost reaches where we grow some wheat down there. Uh, and that's usually a little bit ahead. Of course, any of the OVTs, if it contains something that's really early maturing, some of those things will pop out a lot faster than others. I wouldn't suspect this has been a year where we've had a vernalization issue, so we should be we should be good. Yeah, that's another complicating factor is the difference in heading dates. We also will go through all the trials here at Macon Ridge and record heading dates because the relative maturity can um, affect how much scab you can have depending on the weather at the time that particular variety is flowering. And I think so that, that complicates screening varieties too. So we have to inoculate multiple times and, and make sure that we've got the conditions for disease out there every night. Well, I think the last thing we got to point out is there's a really large monitoring and modeling effort associated with the SCAB initiative that I think is is pretty much directed out of Kansas State University. And I was trying to pull up the website because it's, you know, slightly clunky. SCABsmart.org backslash SCAB underscore forecasting. And that will give you the best information that's associated with, I think, the bulk of the weather stations within a given state and looks at the projected forecast based on overall general growth stage within a given region to give you an idea um, what type of potential exists for the production of scab within the local wheat crop. Anybody listening that has specific one-on-one questions, just call us. We'll walk you through some of that. Uh, It's a little difficult to digest on a podcast, but I think it's important to highlight because it's certainly something farmers should consider in this part of the country if they're growing wheat. Yeah, it looks like the... the I would guess that, that we'll have an acreage increase this fall, depending on seed availability. You know, Ukraine factors into that price. There's a breadbasket of, of Europe, uh, and uh, they're, I don't know if they're going to have a wheat crop, so that'll probably affect prices for sure. Guys, I apologize for my phone beeping. I also apologize uh, for the fact that I haven't figured out how to edit that out yet. <laughs> <laughs> So it just beeps. I think mine beeps a couple times, too. Well, Trey, we, we really appreciate having you on. I know Jason's got a got a meeting here shortly, so we got to jump off. But um, that's super pertinent information and really important to talk to somebody that's doing that research actively. So we really appreciate the, the insight. Sure, yeah. Thanks for the invite. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Trey. Really appreciate it, Dave. And our regular listeners, we appreciate it. Keep all the comments coming, good, bad, or otherwise. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 